0: Have you had a busy week in the market, not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, where we bring you the need-to-know information on documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high yield lev loans and restructuring spaces. I'm Kat Hidalgo, a reporter at 9fin, and I'll be your host for today, when we'll deep dive into pandemic-proof ad-backs, sustainability-linked bond KPIs and securitisation trends with a look at the global ABS conference. But first, the deals in the market this week. In bond-only deals, we have Consolidated Energy, Accardo, and Welltech, and they're all out with a variety of dollar, euro and sterling-denominated senior secured and unsecured notes, all under £1 billion. Loans, looking much more active this week, include Median Clinican, Exclusive Networks, Babalu and Modulaire. The giants in the market this week are Medline and MassMobil. The telecoms business, MassMobil, is raising €800 million Euros in loans, €1.75 billion Euros in senior secured notes and €500 million Euros in sons to support the acquisition of Basque competitor Euskeltel. Market sources say the bookbuilding process is going well and the banks will not need to look beyond European investors. On Medline, what buy-siders are describing as a market-defining deal, the company is out with $3.77 billion in senior secured notes, $4 billion in bonds, a $6 billion TLB and a $500 million euro-equivalent TLB. Next up, we have the Covenant close-up with our fantastic senior legal analyst, Caitlin Carey. Thank you so
1: much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Tat.
0: So today we are gonna be talking about pandemic-proof EBITDA ad-backs, which I think i have probably got you know, even like onto the next level of, of horror for, for investors, I'm sure, looking at covenants these days. Um, can we talk about how we got here from, uh, you know, the, the early dawn of, of EBITDAQ?
1: Sure. So I think, you know, pretty much from the early days when, when COVID started having an impact um, in early 2020 on companies, um, you know, immediately people in the market and on Twitter started saying, you know, oh, when are you know, companies going to adjust uh, their EBITDA for, for COVID? Because, you know, it, it seems like, you know, they adjust for everything else. So pretty soon we're going to have not EBITDA, but EBITDA. Ha ha ha. They say as a joke until it actually happened, um, as these things do. Um, And, you know, I I think a lot of the dialogue that happened at that time was around how issuers and leveraged loan borrowers could use their existing documentation um, and the the flexibility, you know, under the the definitions of of EBITDA um, in order to incorporate those adjustments without having any specific language around, you know, Like lost revenue from COVID can be added back. Um, So, taking advantage of clauses that said, you know, any extraordinary or unusual or non recurring um, exceptional items you know, it could be added back. Sometimes it said losses, costs, expenses. Um, and, and so, you know, spending a lot of time trying to figure out, well, what exactly is a loss and can lost revenue um, that's just, you know, foregone that you never even received, you know, can that count, that sort of thing. Um, but what we've started seeing, um, and I say started, but it, we have seen it um, for, for, several, for several months now in different deals, are explicit clauses within definitions of EBITDA that allow for ongoing addbacks related to lost revenue, um, costs and expenses, and any other negative impact, not just of COVID-19. Um, but we're, we're starting to see in terms of these adjustments is, you know, COVID-19 or any other pandemic or epidemic. And in the most recent deals that's expanded to COVID-19, any pandemic or ap- epidemic Disasters, outbreaks, or other similar disruptions outside of the group's controls—you know—so, so yeah, incidents, disasters, etc. Um, it, it's no longer limited just to to pandemics. Um, it becomes, you know, even more broad for you know any you know sort of like government policy, you know, related changes or impacts, anything related to an, you know, earthquake or flood. Yeah, like um, protests factor in, for example? Well, I, that, that could be an, an incident outside the, the group's control. Yeah, and you mentioned a couple of deals that you've seen this in? Yep, I, it's, it's hard to talk about because I have personally seen um, these types of clauses most of the time in, in marketing for, for loan deals. Um, so loan term sheets, Um, I've seen um, these in in sort of like early bird and and pre-marketed deals as well. One bond OM that had this um, back in June was for Philips Domestic Appliances, Um, and in that case, um, the COVID Adjustments Clause was capped at 20% of EBITDA, and it didn't explicitly say lost or forgone revenue, um, was included in the adjustment. Um, so, so in some cases, the adjustment that I've seen in a bond is slightly narrower than some of the other ones I've seen where these adjustments are, are completely uncapped. Um, and, and do include um, provisions allowing for lost or foregone revenue. I feel bad sometimes talking about these clauses because I think that you know people people will hear and they'll be like, oh that's an idea I'll write that into my next deal <laughs> and then it's like no I think you know the point is that I, I want to to stop seeing so many of these um, and. Um, you know, I think, you know, there was a bit of a, a lull where there were a couple months where I, I didn't see it at all. And then, you know, past, you know, week and a half, I, I you know, picked up, you know, I think three different documents and saw this clause in it. And I was like, hmm. It's back. <laughs> mm, maybe people are looking forward to the next pandemic a little bit more, more closely. and stuff. Or are thinking that, you know, COVID will have a resurgence mm. or, you know.
0: Well, listen, this is a formal request out to any creative lawyers out there to stop listening to Covenants with Caitlin Carey in case you get <laughs> any bad ideas. Um, before we finish off, why should investors worry about this?
1: I think we care because of the uh, range of applications of Ebitda, like throughout the covenants, so this isn't just something that you know is you know m- used in marketing Ebitda. This is actually used for determining how much flexibility a company has um, to take actions that are restricted under its covenants. So, so baskets are built as as percentages of Ebitda, um, you know, leverage based carve outs. You know, it's net debt metrics divided by Ebitda. So, to the extent that the companies you know can you know, the company has flexibility just to increase EBITDA um, for you know various adjustments. Um, it can make their metrics look artificially better, which gives them a lot more flexibility under the covenants.
0: Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG section. Today we're going to be speaking to Josh Latham, one of our Credit Analysts, who looks a little bit closer at sustainability-linked bonds um, and the whole ESG space at large. Josh, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: You've been looking at sustainability links a lot this year, it's been a massive year for them. Can you give us a little history about them?
2: Yeah, sure. So. The first sustainable bond was by Constellium in February of this year and since then we've seen a range of issuers from different industries come to market with sustainable link bonds. And even since the summer break we've seen two deals, the Eurocar and Italium, issue bonds with sustainable performance targets.
0: Certainly over on, on the kind of reporting side, I've spoken a lot to buy about investor concerns, people have long laundry lists of concerns around these. Can you give us an example of these?
2: So one of the main concerns investors have is that issuers choose their own KPIs and the targets that are set. So just to dig deeper into Europe Car, they had two sustainable performance targets. Their first being to reduce the average grams of CO2 emissions per kilometre to 93 grams for cars and 144 grams for vans in their fleet. And this will be tested in 2024. Their second KPI was to do with having 20% of their fleet being green vehicles, which will also be tested in 2024. Now the second party provider said that these KPIs are showing an advanced level of ambition, which is questionable given that by 2024, these targets will be required through regulation. The EU CO2 emissions regulation has already set there should be 95 grams of CO2 per kilometre in new cars by 2021. This means that Europe Car really isn't going above and beyond. And don't get me wrong, we have seen worse targets in deals in the past. Um, in Hapag Lloyd's Sustainable Bond in March, we found that the company had already reduced the carbon intensity of their fleet by the required KPI target, which would be tested in 2024. They've snuck in a KPI, which in theory they already achieved last year
0: so certainly not the worst of the worst but just a bit cheeky, just a bit cheeky. <laughs> um i know by sliders have spoken to me about concerns surrounding when kpis are tested is that an issue here
2: so yeah another problem arises around when the kpis are tested as you said uh, eurocard being one of them so their first testing year is the end of 2024 therefore if they don't achieve either target their coupon will set up by 12.5 basis points per kpi however the bond matures in 2026 and the call schedule actually drops down to par, so that means the bonds are callable at par in October of 2025, therefore the cost they pay for not reaching these targets will hardly affect the firm if at all. And this is different than sustainable link loans, so sustained link loans have a step up step down feature, bonds have only the step up uh, feature which is much more encouraging.
0: Next up, we have our deep discussion, where we go into a specific topic a little bit more deeply. I'm here with Chris Hathenden, our fantastic editor, and Owen Sanderson, our brilliant senior reporter. Owen, we're going to be speaking about the conference you were at this week, right?
3: That's right, Kat. Um, I was at the Global ABS conference this week, which is the premier European gathering of securitisation people, uh, a lot of good CLO chat there, so I guess I've got a little bit of colour and a bit of a sense of how that market is feeling, which I was hoping to share with the listeners today.
4: Yeah, um, I think it's interesting that it's not in Barcelona, which uh, it's probably has reduced the attendance, it's back to Edgware Road, which was the last time it's back in Edgware Road was after the global financial crisis where the securitization market didn't actually know whether it would still be existing. If it did exist, it was probably going to be very heavily regulated. So, um, Normally it's in Barcelona. It's normally a bit of a jamboree. It normally has about 4,000 people. Yeah. Um, and probably a little bit less this
3: time around a <laughs> uh, little, bit, little bit less um, it's, it's very handy for the Westminster, Westminster Centre for Psychological Health so if any of the securitisation professionals are struggling with that it's, it's very available um, it was I think 1300 attendees was what I heard um, mostly UK based not a lot of people travelling in um, but I think probably the feeling the overall market feeling was a lot better than in 2010 people were absolutely loving just being together again after after all this time. There were a few panels where the uh, the moderator tried to inject a, a note of fear or excitement and generally the panelists sort of waved off these concerns so, the issues we've probably talked about a lot on the pod before, um, the covid afflicted sectors, potential unemployment as government support schemes roll off, um, whatever you throw out there, there was a reason why securitisation would keep on trucking, uh, regardless. Um, I think, in fact, in CLO land, someone said it would be it would be a record year, not just for the post. 2008 market but record um outright in europe there's more issuers than ever before and yeah the market's really feeling
4: really strong really optimistic about that
0: chris do you feel like that checks out with your understanding of the market
4: um well i'm sort of a glass half empty man so i'm obviously waiting for the next crash i'm a bit like the um was it the famous saying that sort of economists have uh, predicted 10 out of the last three crashes i'm probably the same with uh you know, crashes for, Uh, The market on the restructuring side. But no, it feels like at the moment there's still, you know, we've come back in September, maybe the issuance has come back a little bit later than we're expecting, but, you know, deals are getting priced uh, aggressively. There seems to be a huge pipeline, but no one seems to be talking about the fact that, you know, there's there's indigestion and we're not seeing that in the pricing of deals. Um, I suppose on CLOs, I'd be probably more interested to know about the pipeline of CLO issuance and, you know, how CLO managers are feeling where pricing is going to go on CLOs, because I know that. We had some backing up of, of spreads in the sort of second quarter and into the summer. Has there been any hmm. sort of signs since the reopening of September that you know you're seeing CLO pricing maybe starting to drive a little bit tighter?
3: Um may be very tentative. There's um there's been a real bunching of spreads, um, not much manager tiering at the senior end, so all, an awful lot of recent deals have been hitting the one oh two. Um, level for seniors um, I believe there was a trade that's just been done for Carlisle that has broken that 100 bits barrier um, so I guess it's heading tighter but can you really count those three basis points, is that going to move the needle for um, overall arbitrage, I'm, I'm not sure, um, I think a few people were predicting 90-ish by the end of the year maybe but again I think Think it's going to be probably range bound.
4: One thing that um Aaron has written about, and it's something that you know probably worth asking about in the pod, is also you know about CLO structures. Are they going to change? Because the fact that the market is becoming more sort of commoditized, you know, are we going to start to see changes in CLO structures to to reflect the commoditization of the market?
3: Well, there are a few managers that already do things a little bit differently. Um so PGM, for example, is well known for having big bond buckets um, in there. I think a few other managers, um, Black Diamond also has a big bond bucket. I've never really understood why why those bond buckets weren't larger. In a lot of other managers, it feels like people constrain their investment options um, probably a bit unnecessarily. So I think that's a plausible outcome. The idea that keeps coming back is is there a way to make CLO debt um, share in the pain of the ESG um, margin ratchets, uh, you know CLO managers are all in favour of ESG except when it costs them money as it mostly does with um, ESG leverage loan ratchets which are usually set as to be very easily achievable so uh, I think they'd like like it to cost someone else money as well and that should be a CLO liability holder but no one's brought one yet
4: and is there I mean I remember in the early days of uh, global ABS post-crisis it was all about the regulation around CLOs and risk retention and you know what the uh, uh and sort of about sort of capital weightings has there been any regulatory changes in the horizon anything that might potentially be um something that might put a sort of you know a stick in the spokes of the CLO wheel
3: um, I regret very much to inform you that people are still talking about regulation at global ABS. Um, it's been uh, what ten, uh, twelve. Uh, it's been a number of years. Um, I think there might actually be a, there's a potential bright spot on the horizon, um, which is which is actually Brexit. I'm not really a a brexiteer, but. Uh, if any sector is going to get a Brexit dividend, it might be the securitisation market, since the UK is now consulting on uh, basically redrafting uh, the securitisation rules. Um, now, they might not tear up the rule rulebook, um, but they might get rid of some of the dumber parts. Um, they might make life easier. Really, it's a bit of a blank sheet of paper at this point, but um, that's a sort of upside wildcard, I'd say, for the market. One one point on the CLO versus leverage loan primary that, that someone pointed out. So I think in in Lev loan primary we've got some sort of big blockbuster deals. And um, actually, what CLOs really need is a, a granular pipeline of small deals. You know, any given CLO can't put in you know more than what five million or so for for a given leverage loan. So um, it might be that despite the strong CLO formation some of these mega deals struggle to get sort of rammed into that market um, as easily as we might think.
4: Yeah, and we've got some very, very large deals out there. I mean, most of the, the biggest deal at the moment out there is more US focus, which is Medline, but we all know that there's some very big telecom deals, which are bonds and loans. So that might cause issues also from a sort of concentration standpoint as well, because if you get a whole bunch of telco deals being done at one point and people are already full on their telco names, and that means that they're going to have to sort of shuffle things around. So that's going to be interesting as well.
0: That's almost the end of the podcast for the week, but before you go, a little bit of extra info. It was a very big week for conferences here at Ninefin. In addition to Owen's attendance at Global ABS, much of the Ninefin team also went to the 16th annual European Leverage Finance Conference held by AFME. It was a stellar roster of speakers and panels, but one that particularly caught our eye was the Heads of Banks Q&A session. Dominic Ashcroft of Goldman Sachs, Ben Thompson of JP Morgan, Susanna Leith-Smith of Barclays and Mark Walsh of Credit Suisse, the heads of the leveraged finance departments at their respective banks came together to discuss some major questions from the audience as well as the moderator. Participants estimated that 50 billion euros of issuance for the rest of the year would come through, with much of the M&A calendar being so well covered by the press that banks and investors have been able to organise themselves well for the autumn. In addition to showing confidence that the full calendar would be absorbed, participants spoke about the breadth of issuance for this year, the variety of different issuance for this year, from small to large, across different ratings, across different credit types and across different sectors. When discussing what the leadfin market could absorb in terms of size, Lefin Bank has thought for a good, quote-unquote, B2-rated credit, uh, we could it could do 2.5 billion euros in loans, 2.5 billion euros in bonds, and then while adding junior behind that, as well as bank participation, term loans A, that could bring you up to 6 to 7 billion euros worth of bonds. And then if you put that into dollars, you could double or triple that. Another participant went to say, that if you manage to get IG guys to dip down to a higher rated credit then almost anything could be sunk by the market. For the future participants were on the whole bearish calling 2021 an exceptional year and expecting next year's volume to be at least flat if not on a downward trend. That's it for this week's episode of Cloud9fin. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Google and Amazon. Thank you very much to Josh, to Caitlin, to Chris and to Owen. And we hope to see you next week.